Chapter Two of Marie Antoinette and Her Son. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maggie Travers. Marie Antoinette and Her Son by Louise Malbach. Chapter Two Madame Adelaide. Queen Marie Antoinette had returned after her Paris ride to her own Versailles. She was silent the whole of the way and the Duchess de Pognac had sought in vain to cheer her friend with light and pleasant talk, and drive away the clouds from her lofty brow. Marie Antoinette had only responded by enforced smiles and half-words, and then, settling back into the carriage, had gazed with dreamy looks into the heavens, whose cheerful blue called out no reflection upon the fair face of the queen. As they drew into the great court of the palace at Versailles, the drum beat of the Swiss guards, presenting arms, and the general stir which followed the approach of the queen, appeared to awaken her from her sorrowful thoughts, and she straightened herself up and cast her glances about. They fell quite accidentally upon the child which was in the arms of the nurse opposite, and which, with great wide-open eyes, was looking up to the heavens, as its mother had done before. In the intensity of her motherly love, the queen stretched out her arms to the child and drew it to her heart and pressed a burning kiss upon its lips oh my child my dear child she said softly you have to-day for the first time made your entry into paris and heard the acclamations of the people may you so long as you live always be the recipient of kindly greetings and never again hear such words as that dreadful man spoke to us to-day she pressed the little duke of normandy closely to her heart and quite forgot that she was all this while in the carriage that near the open portal the hostlers and lackeys were awaiting in a respectful posture the dismounting of the queen that the drums were all the while beating and that the guards were standing before the gates in a fixed attitude of presenting arms the duchess de pognac ventured to suggest in softly spoken words the necessity of dismounting and the queen with her little boy in her arms sprang lightly and spiritedly without accepting the assistance of the master of the grooms out of the carriage smiling cheerily greeting the assembled chamberlains as she passed by hurried into the palace and ran up the great marble staircase the duchess de pognac made haste to follow her while the princess theresa and the dauphin were received by their dames of honour and led into their respective apartments the norman nurse shaking her head hurried after the queen and the chamberlains and both the maids of honour shaking their heads too followed her into the great antechamber after riding out the queen was in the habit of dismissing them there but to-day marie antoinette had gone into her own suite of rooms without saying a word and the door was already closed what shall we do now asked both the maids of honour of the cavaliers and received only a shrug of the shoulders for reply we shall have to wait at last said the marchand de Molay perhaps her majesty will have the kindness to remember us and to permit us to withdraw and if she should happen to forget it answered the princess chichime we shall have to stand here the whole day while the queen and trion is amusing herself with the fantastic pastoral plays yes certainly there is a country festival in trion to-day said the prince de castine shrugging his shoulders and it might easily happen that we should be forgotten and like the unforgettable wife of lot have to stand here playing the ridiculous part of pillars of salt no there comes our deliverance whispered the marchand de Malais, pointing to a carriage which just then came rolling across the broad palace square 
it was yesterday resolved in secret council at the comte de provence that madame adelaide should make one more attempt to bring the queen to reason and make her understand what is becoming and what is unbecoming to a queen of france now look you in accordance with this resolve madame adelaide is coming to versailles to pay a visit to her distinguished niece just then the carriage of the princess adelaide daughter of louis the fifteenth and aunt of louis the sixteenth drove through the great gate into the guarded vestibule of the palace two outriders rode in advance two lackeys stood on the stand behind the carriage and upon the step on each side a page in richly embroidered garments before the middle portal which could only be used by the royal family and which had never been desecrated by the entrance of one who was lowly born the carriage came to a standstill the lackeys hastened to open the gate and a lady advanced in years gross in form with an irritable face well pitted with pock-marks and wearing no other expression than supercilious pride and a haughty indifference dismounted with some difficulty leaning upon the shoulder of her page and toiled up the steps which conducted to the great vestibule the runner sprang before her up the great staircase covered with its carpets and with his long staff rapped on the door of the first antechamber that led to the apartments of the queen madame adelaide shouted he with a loud voice and the lackey repeated it in the same tone quickly opening the door of the second antechamber and the word was taken up by the chamberlains and repeated and carried along where the queen was sitting marie antoinette shrugged herself together a little at this announcement which interrupted her while engaged in charming unrestrained conversation with the duchess de poignac and a shadow flitted across her lofty brow with fiery quickness she flung her arms around the neck of her friend and pressed a kiss upon her lips farewell julia madame adelaide is coming that is just the same as irritation and annoyance she may not bear the least suspicion of this upon her fine and dearly loved face and just because they are not there i must tell you my dear friend to leave me but hold yourself in readiness after madame annoyance has left me to ride with me to trinon the queen must remain here half an hour still but she will be rewarded for it for marie antoinette will afterward go with her julia to trinon to spend half a day of pleasure with her husband and friends and to impart to her friends an eternity of blissful recollections said the duchess with a charming smile pressing the hand of the queen to her lips and taking her leave with inimitable grace in order to pass out through the little side door which entered the corridor through a porcelain cabinet intending then to visit the rooms of the children of france at the same moment in which the lofty dignified form of the duchess disappeared through the side door both wings of the main entrance were flung open and the two maids of honor of the queen advanced to the threshold and made so deep a reverence that their immense petticoats expanded like a kettle then they took a step backward made another reverence so profound that their heads bearing coffers a foot and a half high fell upon their breasts madame adelaide they both ejaculated as with one voice slowly straightening themselves up and taking their places at the sides of the door the princess now appeared upon the threshold behind her her maids of honor and master of ceremonies the grand chamberlain the pages and both masters of grooms standing in the great antechambers at the appearance of the maids of honor marie antoinette had taken her position in the middle of the chamber and could not repress a faint smile as with erect head she noticed the confusion instant upon the princess's imposing entrance 
Madame Adelaide advanced some steps, for the queen did not change her position, nor hasten toward her as she had perhaps expected. Her irritated look increased still more, and she did not take a seat. "'I come, perhaps, at an inconvenient season for your majesty,' said she, with a tart smile. "'The queen, perhaps, was just upon the point of going to Trinon, whether, as I hear, the king has already proceeded?' "'Has your highness heard that?' asked the queen, smiling. "'I wonder what sharp ears Madame Adelaide always has to catch such a trifling rumour, while my younger ones have never caught the least hint of the important approach of the princess, and so I am equally surprised and delighted at the unexpected appearance of my gracious and loving aunt. Every one of these words, which were spoken so cheerily and with such a pleasant smile, seemed to pierce the princess like a prick of a needle, and caused her to press her lips together in just such a way as if she wanted to check an outcry of pain or suppress some hidden rage. Marie Antoinette, while speaking of the sharp ears which madame always had, had hinted at the advanced age no less than at the curiosity of the princess, and had brought her young and unburdened ears into very advantageous contrast with them. "'Would your majesty grant me the favor of an interview?' asked madame Adelaide, who did not possess the power of entering on a contest with her exalted niece, with sharp yet graceful words. "'I am prepared with all pleasure,' answered the queen cheerfully, and it depends entirely upon madame whether the audience shall be private or public. I beg for half an hour of entire privacy, said madame Adelaide with choler. A private audience, ladies, called the queen to her maids of honor, as motioning with her hand she dismissed them. Then she directed her great, brilliant eyes to the door of the antechamber. My lord grooms, in half an hour I should like to have my carriage ready for Trinon. The maids of honor withdrew into the great antechamber and closed the doors behind them. The queen and Madame Adelaide were alone. "'Let us sit, if it pleases you,' said Marie Antoinette, motioning the princess to an armchair, while she took her own place upon a simple ottoman. "'You have something to say to me, and I am entirely ready to hear you.' "'Would to God, Madame, that you would not only hear my words,' said Madame Adelaide with a sigh, "'but that you would take them to heart as well.' "'If they deserve it, I certainly shall,' said the queen, smiling. "'They certainly do deserve it,' said the princess. "'For what I aim at in my words concerns the peace, the security, the honour of our family. "'Madame, allow me first to disburden myself of something that has been committed to me. "'My noble and pious sister, Madame Louise, has given me this letter for your majesty.' and in her name I ask our royal niece to read the same at once and in my presence. She drew from the great reticule, which was attached to her arm by its silken cords, a sealed letter, and handed it to the queen. But Marie Antoinette did not raise her hand to receive it, but shook her head as if in refusal, and yet with so eager emotion that her elaborate coiffure fairly trembled. "'I beg your pardon, madame,' said she earnestly, but I cannot receive this letter from the prioress of the Carmelet convent at Saint-Denis, for you well know that when Madame Louise sent me some years ago, through your highness, a letter which I read, that I never again will receive and read letters from the prioress. Have the goodness, then, to take this back to the sender. You know, madame, that this is an affront directed against a princess of France, was the emphatic reply. 
i know madame that the letter which i then received from madame louise was an affront directed by the princess against the queen of france and i shall protect the majesty of my station from a similar affront unquestionably this letter is similar in tone to that one that one contained charges which went so far as to involve open condemnation and contained proffers of counsel which meant little less than calumny and what would this be likely to contain different which your highness takes the trouble to bring me well cried madame adelaide angrily its purport may be similar to that of the former letter for unfortunately the causes are the same and we may not wonder if the effects are also the same ah one can easily see that your highness knows the contents of the letter said marie antoinette smiling and you will therefore certainly pardon me for not reading it it was unquestionably written in the presence of your highness in the pious cell of the prioress she gave over for a while her prayers for the repose of the departed king in order to busy herself a little with worldly things and to listen to the calumnies which madame adelaide or the comte de provence or the cardinal de conde or some other of the enemies of my person have sought to hurl against the queen of france calumnies replied madame adelaide with an angry flash in her eyes would to god madame that it were calumnies with which we have to do and that all these things which trouble and disturb us were only malicious calumnies and not sober facts and will your highness not have the goodness to communicate these facts to me said the queen undisturbed but smiling and so only increasing the anger of the princess these facts are of so varied kinds that it would be a difficult thing to choose out any separate ones among them cried she with fiery tone every day every hour of the life of your majesty brings new facts to light oh said marie antoinette i had no idea that your highness had such tender care for me and i had no idea madame that your frivolity went so far as continually to wound the laws the customs and the hollowed order of things you do it you do it scorning everything established with the random wantonness of a child that plays with fire and does not know that the waves will flare up and consume it madame i have come here to warn you once more and for the last time cod be thanked for the last time cried the queen with a charming glance of her eyes i conjure you queen for your own sake for your husband's for your children's change your course take a new direction leave the path of danger on which you are hastening to irretrievable destruction the countenance of the queen before so pleasant and animated now darkened her smile gave way to a deep earnestness she raised her head proudly and put on a royal bearing madame she said up to this time i have been inclined to meet your abiding phillips with a quiet indifference which innocence gives and to remain mindful of the reverence due to age and not to forget the harsh eyes with which the aged always look upon the deeds of youth but you compel me to take the matter more earnestly to heart for you join to my name that of my husband and my children and so you appeal to my heart of hearts now then tell me madame what you have to bring against me your boundless frivolity your culpable short-sightedness your foolish pleasures your extravagance your love of finery your mixing with politics your excessive jollibleness your entertainments your marie antoinette interrupted this series of charges with loud merry laughter which more enraged the princess than the most stinging words would have done 
"'Yes,' she continued. "'You are frivolous, for you suppose the life of a queen is one clear summer's day to be devoted to nothing but singing and laughing. You are short-sighted, for you do not see that the flowers of the summer day in which you rejoice only bloom above an abyss into which you, with your wanton dancing, are about to plunge. You indulge in foolish pleasures instead of, as becomes a queen of France, passing your life in seclusion, in devout meditation, in the exercise of beneficence, in pious deeds. You are a spendthrift, for you give the income of France to your favorites, to this Polignac family, which, it has been reckoned, receives alone a twentieth part of the whole income of the state. To these gracious lords and ladies of your so-called society, supporting them in their frivolity, allowing them to make golden gain out of you, you are a lover of finery, not holding it beneath your dignity to spend whole hours with a poor milliner, allowing a man to dress your hair, and afterward to go into the toilet chambers of the Parisian dames, that their hair may be dressed by the same hands which have arranged the hair of a queen, and to imitate the coffer which the queen of France wears. And what kind of a coffer is that which, invented by a queen, is baptized with a fantastic name, and carried through Paris, France, and all of Europe? But said marie antoinette with comical pathos these coffers have some of them horrid names we have for example the hog's bristles coffer the flea-bitten coffer the dying dog the flame of love modesty's cap a a queen's levy interrupted the princess a love's nest of marie antoinette yes we have come to that pass that the fashions are named after the queen and all acquire a certain frivolous character so that all the men and all the honourable women of paris are in despair because the thoughts of their daughters infected with the millinery taste of the queen in the court shun all noble thoughts and only busy themselves with mere affairs of taste i have shown you and you will not be able to deny it madame that this decline in manners which has been engendered by this love of finery proceeds from you and from you alone that not only your love of finery is to blame but also your coquetry your duality and these unheard-of indescribable orgies to which the queen of france surrenders herself and to which she even allures her own husband the king of france the oldest son of the church what does your highness mean asked the queen of what entertainments are you speaking i am speaking of the entertainments which are celebrated in trinon to the perversion of all usage and all good manners of those orgies in which the queen transforms herself into a shepherdess and permits the ladies of her court who ought to appear before her with bended knee and with downcast eyes to clothe themselves like her and to put on the same bearing as the queen's i speak of those orgies where the king enchanted by the charms of his wife and allured by her coquetry so far forgets his royal rank as even to take part himself in this stupid frivolity and to bear a share in this trivial masquerading and this queen whose loud laughter fills the groves of trinon and who sometimes finds her pleasure in imitating the lowing of cows or the bleeding of goats this queen will afterward put on the bearing of a statesman and will with those hands which have just got through arranging an allegorical headdress dip into the machinery of state interrupting the arrangements of her entertainments to busy herself with politics to set aside old cherished ministers to bring her friends and favourites into their places and to make the king the mere executor of her will 
Madame, said the queen, as glowing with anger and with eyes of flame, she rose from her seat. Madame, this is going too far. This oversteps the bounds that every one, even the princesses of the royal house, owe to their sovereign. I have allowed you to subject to your biting criticisms my outer life, my pleasures, and my dress, but I do not allow you to take in hand my inner life, my relations to my husband, and my personal honor. You presume to speak of my favorites. I demand of you to name them, and if you can show that there is one man to whom I show any other favor than a gracious queen may show to a servant, a subject whom she can honor and trust, I desire that you would give his name to the king, and that a close investigation may be made into the case. I have friends, yes, thank heaven. I have friends who prize me highly, and who are every hour prepared to give their life for their queen. I have true and faithful servants, but no one will appear and give evidence that Marie Antoinette has ever had an illicit lover. My only lover has been the king, my husband, and I hope before God that he will always remain so, so long as I live. But this is exactly what the noble princesses, my aunts, what the Count de Provence and the whole party of the old court never will forgive me for. I have had the good fortune to win the love of my husband. The king, despite all calumnies and all intrigues, lowered his glance to the poor young woman who stood solitary near him, and whom he had been taught to prize lightly and to despise. And then he found that she was not so simple, stupid, and ugly as she had been painted. He began to take some notice of her, and then, God be thanked, he overlooked the fact that she was of Austrian blood, and that the policy of his predecessor had urged her upon him. His heart warmed to her in love, and Marie Antoinette received this love as a gracious gift of God, as the happiness of her life. Yes, madame, I may say it with pride and joy, the king loves me, he trusts me, and therefore his wife stands nearer to him than even his exalted aunts and I am the one whom he most trusts, and whom he selects to be his chief adviser. But this is just the offense which will never be forgiven me. It has fallen to my lot to take from my enemies and opponents their influence over my husband. The time has gone by when Madame Adelaide could gain an attentive ear when she came to the king, and in her passionate rage charged me with unheard-of crimes, which had no basis except that in some little matters I had loosened the ancient chains of etiquette. The time has passed when Madame Louis could presume to drive me with her flashing anger from her pious cell, and make me kneel in the dust. And when it was permitted to the Count de la Mort to accuse the Queen before the King of having risen in time to behold the rising of the sun at Versailles, in company of her whole court. The King loves me, and Madame Adelaide is no longer the political counsellor of the King. The ministers will no longer be appointed according to her dictate, and the great questions of the cabinet are decided without appealing to her. I know that this is a new offense which you lay to my charge, and that by your culminations and suspicions you make me suffer the penalty for it. I know that the Count de Provence stoops to direct epigrams and pamphlets against his sister-in-law, his sovereign, and through the agency of his creatures to scatter them through Paris. I know that in his saloons all the enemies of the queen are welcome, and that charges against me are made without rebuke, and that there the weapons are forged with which I am assailed. But take care, lest some day these weapons be turned against you. It is you who are imperiling the kingdom, and undermining the throne, for you do not hesitate setting before the people an example that nothing is sacred to you. 
that the dignity of the throne no longer has an existence, but that it may be denied with vile insinuations, and the most poisonous arrows directed against those who wear the crown of St. Louis on their head. But all you, the aunts, the brothers of the king, and the whole swarm of their intimates and dependents, you are all undermining the monarchy, for you forget that the foreigner, the Austrian, as you call her, that she is queen of France, your sovereign, your lord, and that you are nothing better than her subjects. You are criminals, you are high traitors. Madame, cried the princess Adelaide, Madame, what language is that? It is the language of a woman in reply to a culminator, the language of a queen to a rebellious subject. Madame, have the goodness not to answer me again. You have come into the palace of your sovereign to accuse her and she has answered you as becomes her station. Now we have nothing more to say to each other. You requested a half-hour's private audience with me, and the time has gone. Farewell, madame. My carriage stands ready, and I go to Trinon. I shall, however, say nothing to the king respecting the new attack which you have made upon me, and I promise you that I shall forget it and forgive it. She nodded lightly, turned herself around, and with lofty carriage and proud self-possession left the apartment. Princess Adelaide looked after her with an expression of the deepest hate, and entirely forgetful of her lofty station, even raised her hand threateningly in the direction of the door through which the noble figure of the queen had just vanished. "'I shall not forget nor forgive,' muttered she. "'I shall have my revenge on this impudent person who dares to threaten me and even to defy me, and who calls herself my sovereign. This Austrian, a sovereign of the Princess Royal of France!' We will show her where are the limits of her power, and where are the limits of France. She shall go back to Austria. We want her not, this Austrian who dares to defy us. Proud and erect, though the bearing was with which the queen left Madame Adelaide, she had hardly entered her own room and closed the door which separated her from her enemy, when she sank groaning upon a seat, and a flood of tears streamed from her eyes. Oh, Campon, Campon! what have i been compelled to hear cried she bitterly with what expressions have they ventured to address the queen of france madame de Campan, the first lady-in-waiting on the queen who had just then entered the porcelain room hastened to her mistress and sinking upon her knees pressed the fallen hand of the queen to her lips your majesty is weeping she whispered with her mild sympathetic voice your majesty has given the princess the satisfaction of knowing that she has succeeded in drawing tears from the queen of france and reddening her beautiful eyes no i will not give her this pleasure said the queen quickly raising herself up and drying her eyes i will be merry and why do i weep she sought to make me sick she sought to wound me but i have given back the sickness and the wounds which i have inflicted upon her will not so soon heal has your majesty inflicted anything upon the princess cried madame de chopin in agitation yes answered marie antoinette with a triumphant joy i have scourged her i have wounded her for i have distinctly intimated to her that i am the queen of france and she my subject i have told her that when she dares direct her calumnies against the queen she is guilty of high treason oh exclaimed madame de chopin the proud princess will never pardon that your majesty has now become her irreconcilable enemy and she will leave no stone unturned to revenge herself upon you she may attempt to revenge herself upon me 
cried the queen, whose countenance began to brighten up once more. I fear neither her nor her whole set. All their arrows will fall powerless at my feet, for the love of my husband and my pure conscience form the protection which secures me. And what can these people accomplish against me? They can slander me, that is all, but their calumnies will, in the end, prove that it is lies they tell, and no one will give them confidence more. Ah, your majesty does not know the wickedness of the world, sighed Compon sadly. Your majesty believes that the good are not cowardly, and that the bad are not reckless. Your majesty does not know that the bad have it in their power to corrupt public opinion, and that then the good have not the courage to meet this corrupting influence. But public opinion is a monster that brings the charge, passes the judgment, pronounces the sentence, and inflicts the punishment in one person. Who thinks lightly of it, arrays against himself an enemy stronger than a whole army, and less open to entreaty than death? Ah! Oh, cried the queen, raising her head proudly. I do not fear this enemy. She shall not dare to attack me. She shall crouch and shrink before my gaze as a lion does when confronted by the eye of a virgin. I am pure and blameless. I pledge my troth to my husband before he loved me. And how shall I now break it when he does love me and is the father of my dear children? And now, enough of these disagreeable things that want to cast their vileness upon us. And the sun is shining so splendidly, and they are waiting for me in Trinon. Come, Champagne, come. The queen will take the form of a happy wife. Marie Antoinette hastened before her lady-in-waiting, hurried into her toilet chamber in advance of her lady-in-waiting, who followed, sighing and shaking her head, and endeavored with her own hands to loosen the stiff corset of her robe, and to free herself from the immense crinoline which imprisoned her noble form. "'Off with these garments of state and royal robes,' said Marie Antoinette, gliding out of the stiff apparel, and standing in a light, white undergarment with bare shoulders and arms. "'Give me a white percal dress and a gauze mantle with it. Will your majesty appear again in this simple costume?' asked madame chopin sighing certainly i will cried she i am going to trinon to my much-loved country house you must know chopin that the king has promised to spend every afternoon of a whole week with me at trinon and there we are going to enjoy life nature and solitude so for a whole week the king will only be king in the forenoon and in the afternoon a respectable miller in the village trinon now is not that a merry thought chopin and do you not see that I cannot go to Trinon in any other than a light white dress? Yes, your majesty, I understand, but I was only thinking that the tradespeople of Lyons had just presented a paper to your majesty, in which they complain of the decadence of the silk manufacture, explaining it on the ground that your majesty has a preference for white clothing, and stating that all the ladies feel obliged to follow the example of their queen and lay their silk robes aside. And do you know, too, asked Marie Antoinette, that Madame Adelaide has herself supported this ridiculous paper of the Leonese merchants, giving out that I wear white percale because I want to do my brother, the Emperor Joseph, a service, and so ordered these white goods from the Netherlands? Ah, uh, let us leave these follies of the wicked and the stupid. They shall not prevent my wearing white clothes and being happy in Trinon. Give me a white dress quickly, Champagne. Pardon, your majesty, but I must first summon the ladies of the roving room answered madame de compon turning to the door of the sleeping-room oh why all this parade sighed the queen can i never be free from the fetters of all this ceremony 
could you not yourself champagne put a simple dress upon me your majesty i am only a poor powerless being and i fear enmities the ladies would never forgive me if i should encroach upon their rights and separate them from the adored person of the queen it is their right it is their duty to draw the robe upon the person of your majesty and to secure your shoes i beg therefore your gracious permission to allow the ladies to come in well do it then sighed the queen let me bear the fetters here in versailles until the last moment i shall have my compensation in trinon be assured i shall have my compensation there a quarter of an hour later the queen was arrayed in her changed attire and came out from the toilet chamber the stiff crinoline had disappeared the whalebone corset with the long projecting point was cast aside and the high coffer which lenard had so elaborately made up in the morning was no more to be seen a white robe decorated at the bottom with a simple voltaire fell in broad artistic folds over her noble figure whose full proportions had been concealed by the rigid state dress a simple waist encircled her bust and was held together by a blue sash which hung in long ends at her left side broad cuffs held together with simple narrow lace fell down as far as the wrist but through the thin material could be seen the fair form of her beautiful arms and the white triangle of gauze which she had thrown over her naked neck did not entirely veil the graceful lines of her full shoulders and her noble bust her hair deprived of its unnatural disfigurement and almost entirely freed from powder arched itself above her fine forehead in a light toupee and fell upon her shoulders in rich brown locks on which only a mere breadth of powder had been blown on her arm the queen carried a great round straw hat secured by blue ribbons and over her fair white hands she had drawn gloves of black netting thus with beaming countenance with blushing cheeks and with smiles curling around her full red lips thus all innocence merriment and cheerfulness marie antoinette entered the sitting-room where the duchess de pognac was waiting for her in an attire precisely like that of the queen the latter flew to the duchess with the quickness of a young girl with the tenderness of a sister and drew her arm within that of her friend come julia she said let us leave the world and enter paradise ah i am afraid of paradise cried the duchess with a merry smile i have a horror of the serpent you shall find no serpents there my julia said the queen drawing the arm of the duchess to herself lean upon me my friend and be persuaded that i will defend you against every serpent and every low creeping thing oh i fear this serpent more for my adored queen than for myself what is there in me to harm but your majesty is exposed on every side to attack oh why julia sighed the queen why do you address me with the stiff formal title of majesty when we are alone together why do you not forget for a little etiquette when there is nobody by to hear us your majesty laughed the duchess we are in versailles and the walls have ears it is true cried the queen with quick restored merriment we are here in versailles that is your exculpation come let us hasten to leave this proud royal palace and get away to the society of beautiful nature where there are no walls to hear us but only god and nature come julia she drew the duchess quickly out through the side door which led to the little corridor and thence to the adjacent staircase and over the small court to one of the minor gates of the palace leading to the park 
the coop of the queen was standing before this door and the master of the stole and the lackeys were waiting the approach of the queen marie antoinette sprang like a gazelle into the carriage and then extended her hand to the duchess to assist her to ascend forward forward cried the queen to the coachman and drive with all haste as if the horses had wings for i long to fly forward oh forward End of chapter two recording by maggie travers